0: I want you to turn in your Bible over to Ephesians. Now, I'm letting you know ahead of time, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 in particular, chapter 2 and 3, but 1 in particular for quite a while. There's a lot of foundational truth in chapter 1 that is so important for us to understand. I've entitled this, as far as a theme, I Will Build My Church. Now, the book of Ephesians is one of the books, that is, or letters, that is called a prison epistle. The reason it is called that, it was written by Paul along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during Paul's, I believe, his first imprisonment. It's around A.D. 60 or so. This would make it around 30 years after Jesus was here on earth. A lot took place, by the way, from the time of Jesus to the writing of the New Testament. There was a lot going on during that period. This would make it around 30 years, as I mentioned, after Jesus was here. Remember... Then this is such an important truth. Remember that Ephesians is written to a local church, okay? It's a local church. Is it Bible truth for every Christian of all time? Absolutely it is, no doubt about that. But it brings clarity and it helps with the context of understanding. It's just like if the Apostle Paul was still writing today and he wrote a letter personalized to our church, that is the idea of what he's done here in writing Ephesians. And so it's written to a local church of believers. And so this is important to understand a lot of how these things apply and how they function and how God wants us to see them. This same church, by the way, is addressed in Revelation chapter two by Jesus himself. Some 60 years after it was written, or not 60 years, about 40 years after Ephesians was written. And the church was in not such good shape when Jesus addressed them in Revelation chapter 2. But that's for another time. All right. Now, while the theme for Ephesians is often seen as the church of Jesus Christ, and I've preached through Ephesians several times, and I think I've used that as my theme, we're going to look at it a little differently this time nothing contradictory, just maybe a little different emphasis or approach. And I would like to take this different approach and give it this theme. I will build my church. I will build my church. And of course, that's a quote taken from Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus was talking to Peter. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, During this series, we will look at not just the theological truths, don't be afraid of that word, not just the theological truths concerning the church, but in fact, the practical ways that the Lord is building and will build His church. The body of Christ, the local church, all of that. All of this is found in Ephesians. Nowhere else in Scripture are the truths of the church age in which we live, the dispensation of grace, and our responsibilities as believers during that period more clearly set forth. You're going to find so much in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians can be divided basically into two parts, chapters one through three. We see the theological truth of the believer and the church. So we're not only going to be talking about the theological reality of the body of Christ, but we're also going to be talking about those of us who make up the body of Christ and what a believer is and a lot of details concerning that. In other words, what is a believer and who makes up the church? chapters one through three deal with that chapter four through six by the way this is following paul's pattern when he usually writes what he does is he usually writes the first part is a doctrinal truth a laying a foundation building a foundation and then what goes upon that what is built upon those doctrinal truths in a way of practicing that and living that out that's paul's pattern you see that in his letters so Chapter 1 through 3, the theological truth of the believer and the church. In other words, what is a believer and who makes up the church? Chapters 4 through 6, the building of the believer and the church. The building of it, the structure. In other words, the life of the believer and how we as believers build the body of Christ and how we build that up or how we build the church. So chapters 1 through 3. Foundation. Chapters four through six, structure. Any of you have ever built a building, you know that's how it has to be done, (laughs) right? We got a construction guy over here. You don't build a house without a foundation. If you just build it on dirt, it's not going to last 20 minutes. Okay, when you start putting all that weight on there. No, you lay the foundation. You're careful to get the foundation exactly right, the cornerstone of that foundation and get everything right and everything level. Even just off a smidgen, if it's not level and that foundation's not level, you're gonna have structural problems down the road. Everything's gotta be carefully set. That's what God does in his word, chapters one through three. He carefully sets the foundation and then he teaches us okay, this is how you build on that. To put it another way, chapters one through three also deal with how we are seen in eternity as believers. How we are seen in eternity. Chapters four through six deal with the life we should be living out as believers while we're still here on earth. Now, this week I was thinking about Ephesians and I thought, well, what are some of the things that we are gonna be looking at And as I, honestly, as I started writing these things down or actually typing them down in my own style of typing, I'll try not to digress too much, but when I went to school, typing was something for sissies. Very few guys took typing class. That's the way it was seen. That's wrong. It shouldn't have been seen that way, but that's the way it was seen. And so I never learned to type. I did not learn to type. Until I had the opportunity to uh, start working on a computer and I didn't know how to type. And so I learned the truth of it is I learned the spiritual version of typing. No, it's not Mavis Beacon, okay? Or some of these others learned to type courses. It was the spiritual one. It's called Seek and Ye Shall Find. (laughs) Slow process. You might say, you could have taken a course. You know what? I kind of have developed my own style over the years, and I actually tried to do it through our programs here. And you know what? If I didn't have anything else to do, I probably could have learned. But I I just felt like it was, oh, I I just don't have time for this. I got work that I had to get done. So anyways, but I got thinking about it this week in Ephesians. Some of the important truths we will be learning in this book. We have it divided into six chapters. All it is is a letter. But folks, it is obvious this is inspired by God because we are going to be learning some things that are so important. Let me give you just a list of them. I started typing these things down. We're going to learn what an apostle is. That's today. We're going to learn what a saint is. That's today. Today. Starting next week, we're going to learn what predestination is. Ooh, that's a hot topic today. We're going to learn what election is all about. We're going to learn what foreknowledge is. It's all covered in Ephesians, by the way. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit, who he is. We're going to learn about eternal security. We're going to learn about dispensations, and in particular, the dispensation of grace which is where we live today, otherwise known as the church age. We're going to learn what the church is. It's not a building, by the way. We're going to learn what salvation is. We're going to learn how the church is to function and fulfill its mission. We're going to learn how God wants us to live out our new lives in Christ. We're going to learn what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, it has nothing to do with so-called tongues. Tongues. We're going to learn about the family relationship, marriage, and child training. That's all in these little few pages. Yeah, it's all in there. We're going to learn about how to be effective at your workplace. We're going to understand, start understanding spiritual warfare and how to win in spiritual warfare and even more. All of that is found in Ephesians. So you're in the right place. Okay, let's open our Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. The first thing we see Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle. What does that mean? Okay, an apostle was not. You know, years ago, there was a a question in a Sunday school class. The teacher asked the kids, what is an epistle? And little boy raised his hand. He says, an epistle, that's the wife of an apostle. Okay, no, no, that's not how it works. What is an apostle? It simply means, the word apostle means a sent one. A sent one, or one who is sent. Now, there's an official capacity that Paul is talking about here. With this title came authority, not to lord it over people, but to remind people that he was appointed to that office by God himself. It was the will of God for Paul's life, for Paul to be an apostle. And so he starts out basically saying, Paul, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am a sent one, okay? And he, I believe he was referring to his official office. He was to teach them some amazing truths that had never been given before or aspects of amazing truths. And those aspects had never been given before. We find them in Ephesians. He was proclaiming them with apostolic authority. By the way, there are no apostles today. You might say, "Oh, well, wait, the Mormons have them. Those are false apostles. Mormonism is a cult. Okay, I'm not saying they don't have nice people in the Mormon church. I'm just saying it is a cult. Their religious system is a false one. They have a false Christ. They have a false gospel. They have a false church, according to Scripture. Nothing personal here. This is just where the theology comes down. Based on works for salvation, by the way. So that's not what it is. There are no apostles today. Some of your Pentecostal strains or systems today, they'll call some of their leadership apostles, okay? Not in the formal sense. You are not related to the 12 apostles of the Bible, okay? Now, in a practical sense, we are all to be apostles in that the word simply means a set one. Are we not all as believers sent to reach others for Christ? In a sense, we are apostles. We're sent ones by the nature of the word. But in a formal sense, we're not apostles. There's only 12. So an apostle is a sent one. And Paul was officially sent by God, appointed by God to be an apostle. And of course, he starts a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of his letters, he starts with that, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you notice this, Paul, an apostle, Of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Look at the next phrase. It says, To the saints. Now let's just pause and talk about saints here. He calls all the believers in the church saints. Now that's kind of interesting. You might say, Well, were they all really godly living people? We're going to get to that in just a minute. The short answer is no. But he calls them saints. So here's the problem, folks. You don't define words in the Bible by what you see going on in the world around you. The word saint does not mean the same thing as the way the world sees the word saint. The word saint, it's a Greek word, hagias, okay? Well, I'll get to the definition in a minute. He calls all the believers in the church saints. How could a person know he was a saint? Now, by today's standards, according to the world, you can't know you're a saint until after you die, some religion that you're involved with, they look at your life, they examine your life, and they decide, well, you know what? Yeah, boy, yeah, we're going to bestow sainthood on that person. That's blasphemy. Listen, if you have to wait until you die to find out you're a saint, guess what? You're probably not going to heaven. I say, why would you say that? Because you are basing your entrance into heaven on your good works. That has nothing to do foundationally with what a saint is. What is a saint? Simply put, a saint is one who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and as a result has been set apart to the Lord and made pure by the blood of Christ. It's a person who has been set apart by God, made pure by God, and that takes place the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what the word saint means. It is, in a sense, it's a synonym for the word believer. Doesn't mean the same as the word believe. The word believe means to trust. But those who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, the moment they do, they become saints. The moment they do because it's a positional word it has to do with how God sees us in eternity it is the same root word as the word holy in our bible and the word sanctify or sanctified in our bible now, please listen carefully as we go through this. It's very important you understand it because it will clear up a lot of confusion as far as what people believe and maybe even what you believe. Hold your place here and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Sainthood is not like knighthood. Sainthood is simply a matter of when you trust Christ as Savior, you become a saint. It's not based on what you achieve or accomplish in your life or acts of, that are heroic. 1 Corinthians 1. Now, Paul here, he's writing again to another local church, a church at Corinth, and these people were believers, and he recognizes that, in the, especially in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But then the entire rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's rebuking them because of the sinful ways they were living their lives. They were a disgrace to Grace. They were a disgrace in the way they were living. And yet, look what he calls them and recognizes them as in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, here it is again, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified, Hagias, there's the Greek word, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called, now we have the word to be is italicized in our King James Bible, called, literally called saints. Saints, sanctified, same root word. So he's writing to these people. They have been sanctified, set apart, made pure and holy in Christ Jesus. And so what does he call them? Saints. He's recognizing their position in Christ. He's recognizing how God sees them In eternity. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, again, many religions have the idea that you can't be a saint until you've lived a life of good works. And then some council bestows sainthood on you. That's completely false. It's completely false. Sainthood is something you receive the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. I want you to look to your right, to the person next to you on the right, and then to the left, if you do that, okay? Here's the truth. If that person has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, they are a saint. They're a saint. I'm not St. Thomas Aquinas, whoever he was, but I am St. Thomas. By the way, by no merit of my own, it is because I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of God and I am a saint. So I can look out and I could start, you know, naming different people in the the room here. I'm not going to do it because if I don't point you out, your feelings will get hurt. (laughs) But, anyways, this is what sainthood is about. You might say, well, well, I thought you get to heaven by your good works. I like what one man said. I heard this recently. He said this if getting into heaven was based on merit, in other words, what you do, You would never make it, but your dog would, (laughs) right? To the church of God, which is at Northland, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called saints. How do you get sanctified? How do you get set apart and made pure and holy? We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want you to go with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at it in detail. Hebrews chapter 10. Here's how it tells us how to be sanctified. And how to be sanctified is how to become a saint. Because if you are sanctified by God, you are a saint. Hebrews chapter 10 is talking about the payment Jesus made and that it was a complete payment for our sin. And it says in verse 10, by the which will, referring in the context by God's will, we are sanctified, there it is again, Set apart, made pure and holy. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once, he only offered himself once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now the writer had in mind the Jewish sacrifices. When I first read this, I thought it was, I was just a new babe in Christ. I thought I was talking about the Catholic Church, because Mass is said every day in the Catholic Church. You understand that, right? It's not just once a week. Every day there's Mass. You can go to Mass every single day. Matter of fact, there's a lot of people who go to Mass every single day, and they really believe in their heart that's going to help them get to heaven. What a sad error and deception You don't go to heaven based on how many times you go to church and you going through the mass. See, folks, what is the mass? According to the catechism number two, mass is the unbloody sacrifice of Christ again on the cross. The unbloody sacrifice. Every day they're offering this up in their mind. They're in their mind. They're offering up Christ again, again, again. The Bible says no. He did it once. He did it for all and it will never be repeated again. There's only one payment for sin. It's the one Jesus did some 2,000 years ago. Look what it says, verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. By the way, this is why once you're saved, you can't be lost again. Listen, if you could be lost again, you could never be saved again. Why is that? Because Jesus only paid for sins once. And if you could lose your salvation and that would be through some sin, whether it's your works or unbelief. If you could lose your salvation, then there's no more payment for sin. He's not going to pay for sin again. There's no more offering. So if we are not under his first payment for sin, we have no chance of heaven. But if you've trusted him as your savior, the Bible says his payment was sufficient for all sin of all time. And if you've accepted the payment Jesus has made for your sin, you're good to go. You're good forever. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Notice one sacrifice for sins for forever. Do you see that in verse 12? It was satisfactory and therefore unnecessary to repeat. This is why once you are saved, you have eternal redemption. Where does it say that? I'm so glad you asked. Turn back just one page. Chapter 9 and verse 12. It says this, Hebrews 9 verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, here it is again, he entered in once, once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption So if you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we sang that this morning, right? If you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you're redeemed forever. Because He only redeems one way, eternally. That's why once saved, always saved is a foundational, absolute, necessary doctrine of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith, faith in who? Faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us in paying for our sins on the cross. That's why he said right before he died, it is finished, paid in full. He obtained eternal redemption for us. And he died and was buried and he rose from the grave. Now, getting back to Ephesians chapter 1. Go back there, Ephesians chapter 1. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, the word holy, the word sanctify, the word saint, they're all related. They're all related. It's all the same root. Holy is the same word used to describe, by the way, the Holy Spirit of God himself. Now, Think of this, the Holy Spirit of God himself. When you trust Christ as Savior, you are made holy. You are made pure in the eyes of God. Just as pure as God himself. Do you know why? Not only are all your sins gone, but he has given you his righteousness. He's put his righteousness to your account. In a sense, when you trust Christ as Savior, you give the Lord your sin, Okay, He pays for it. He takes it. The payment is good on your behalf. And he gives you in exchange his righteousness. Boy, what an exchange, right? Lord, here I am. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm on my way to hell. I'm separated from you because of my sin. And he says, trust me as your payment for sin. And if you trust me as your payment for sin, I'll give you my righteousness. The moment you trust in me, Your sins are gone, and I give you in exchange, my righteousness. Is God holy? Yes. And guess what? When you trust Christ the Savior in light of eternity, you are holy. Listen, you can't go to hell because there's nothing to send you there. Jesus, if you could go to hell once you're saved, how's that work in light of, wait a minute, God gave you his righteousness and you can still go to hell? What does that say for God. You might say, oh, that's blasphemous. No, friend. It's the greatness of the grace of God. It's the greatness of the payment Jesus made. No, God can't go to hell. And you know why God can't go to hell? Because He's he's God, because He's righteous, He's holy, He's pure. And He gives that to you the moment you trust Christ the Savior. And we've got this wonderful word in the Bible that defines that you're a saint. You're a saint the moment you trust Christ. Yet we live in a world, don't we? There are people, and it's a very common thing. You'll hear people say, you know, they're, they're just doing whatever they're doing, their condition, and uh, people say, you know, they're, they're cursing God and blaspheming God and wicked and everything, and they'll say, <laughs> well, I'm no saint. What a pity. You can be you can be a saint. See, but they're thinking in terms of the way they live, and they're admitting, you know what? I live a wicked life. I'm no saint. No, friend, you can be a saint, but let me say this. If you are a saint, God has called you to a better life than what you've got. He has. See, here's the truth of it. When you trust Christ the Savior, remember, We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And not only that, but when you trust Christ, not only does the Holy Spirit come to live within you, he also gives you a new nature born of God by which through that we can live a godly life for Christ once we're saved. See, we're born into royalty when we get saved. People say, man alive, you know, I see those royals and I see, you know, like uh, William and whatever his wife's name is, I can't even remember her name. Oh, these people, and what a life, the royal life. I wonder what that would be to live that kind of a life. Boy, that life of royalty. Wait a minute. We have a royalty that far surpasses any of this earthly stuff. We're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You may not always act like royalty. That royal couple, they have children. I'm sure those children don't always act like royalty, But that doesn't matter because they're royalty through blood. Guess what? We are royalty through the blood of Christ. We're children of God himself. What a blessing. The Corinthian church did not live like they were saints. That was a major part of their problem. See, folks, we have an identity crisis in the church today. We forget who we are as children of God, and that we should live as children of God. Once we're saved, we should live as children of God. It's not a requisite to getting to heaven. It's a proper response to what God has done for us in grace. Believers have forgotten what the Lord has done for them and to them when they believed. We've been made pure and holy and have been set apart to the Lord for his purpose. We have been freed from the bondage and the wages of sin. We are royalty, and it's all a gift of the grace of God. It's a free gift. You mean to say I can trust Christ the Savior and I'm saved no matter what? No matter what? No matter what? No matter what. Even if I sin? Yes, because your sin's been paid for. Now, God doesn't want us to sin. The truth of it is we will sin once we're saved because we still have a sin nature as well as a new nature. But God wants us to live according to the new nature. Now, let's go back to Ephesians Chapter 1. See, I told you there's a lot here. Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 1 again, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints, to the saints, that's the believers, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, All the saints are faithful, he says, To all the believers, and I also want to emphasize the faithful believers. See, every saint should be faithful, but being faithful doesn't make you a saint. You're in Ephesians. Look at over across the page, chapter 2, verse 10. We already quoted verses 8 and 9, but verse 10, for we are his workmanship, the thing made. That's what workmanship is. They're his product. We are God's product. He's the one who gave us the new birth. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He saved us unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Not we will or we must, but we should. This is the language of grace to the faithful. God wants us to be faithful. Now, Ephesians 1, verse 2, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this fourth important point here, grace be to you and peace. See, it is because of the grace of God that we can have peace with God. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith, faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust him as savior, he saves you by his grace. And as a result of that, we have, listen carefully, peace with God. Because before you're saved, the wrath of God abides on you. But when you trust Christ the Savior, there's no more wrath for the believer. We are saved by the grace of God. We're children of God, and now we have peace with God. That's our standing. That's our place in light of eternity. That's who we are in Christ. That's your identity. I've been saved by grace. Now, why can't people seem to find peace today? Because they're looking in all the wrong places. Well, you Christians, you know, you you weak-minded people, you use Jesus as a crutch. What's your crutch? No, friend, he's not a crutch. He's our all in all. He's our life. What's your crutch? I don't need Jesus. Give me another bottle of booze, okay? I don't need Jesus. Give me some more drugs to snort or shoot up. I don't need Jesus. What's your crutch? That stuff will destroy you. Jesus will only bless you. What's your crutch? Drugs, alcohol, materialism, immorality, or uh, yeah, immorality, money, hobbies. All those things are going to pass away when you die. But if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll live forever with Him. And you can experience life in Christ Not just when you die, you can experience it now. See, notice where peace comes from, according to verse 2. From the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Grace and peace come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're saved by His grace, and we experience peace with God. How does that translate out into everyday life. Well, I'll share with you my experience, my experience. I'm not saying it's this way with everybody, but I'll tell you what happened to me. The night I trusted Christ as my savior, it was like a piano was taken off my back. It was the weight of sin. It was the weight of unbelief. And when I trusted Christ the savior, all my sin was paid for, and I experienced peace with God at that moment now not only does God save us by his grace and we are at peace with God but God also says this as believers as we walk with him we can experience the peace of God of God so we have peace with God but there are a lot of believers who aren't living with the peace of God that's only as we walk with him Let's close over in Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me. Romans to your left, chapter 5. And we get a little bit of a preview here of the greatness of what God has in store for his children. Not only do we have eternity locked in with him, but you know what, folks? The Lord is an everyday savior. He wants to be our shepherd. See, he first has to be your savior before he can be your shepherd. You must trust him as your savior. Then allow him as a believer to be your shepherd, the one who leads you and guides you, takes you through life, okay? Navigates life for you. And we see in Romans uh, 5, verse 1, it says, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, by whom also, It doesn't stop when you get saved. It begins when you get saved. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have access into the grace of God. We are immersed in the grace of God. We are accepted in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. More about that in weeks to come. Our position is in grace, but in that position, we can experience such incredible spiritual life, and this is all made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me say today, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, the Savior, if this is our sin, and this separates us from God, you can't get to heaven with even one sin, not even one might say, man, well, I don't have a big, thick thing of that. Man, I just got my, my one. Whether it was a one or a million, it doesn't matter. It separates you from God. Heaven's a perfect place. You've got to be perfect to get in. None of us are. God says because we're sinners, our sin has to be paid for. And if we're going to do it, we're going to spend forever lost in hell, suffering. Doesn't have to be that way. God loves you. He hates our sin. Because there's nothing we could do to work this off. The Lord God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. Sinless. He went to the cross. He paid for sin once and for all, as we saw in Hebrews. Nothing's left. He died, was buried. He came back from the dead. He says this, If you will believe in Him that He did that for you, you put your faith in Him the moment you do, you have ever lasting life. You are locked in. He will never let you go. You are secure. No one is able to pluck you out of his hand. No one's able to pluck you out of the father's hand. And as we're going to see in Ephesians, you are sealed in with and by the Holy Spirit. You are as secure as God is honest and he's honest. Can't lie. So if you haven't trusted Christ, would you do it today?